Hi, I'm Dennis Metzler, and welcome to The Charge. Today, we're taking a look at environmental ethics with Dr. Dennis Hollinger, Senior Distinguished Professor of Christian Ethics and President Emeritus of Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. Dr. Hollinger, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Dennis. Great joy to be with you. To start with, let's get your basic definition of ethics and then move on to what is environmental ethics. Of course, everybody has an idea of what ethics is, but what is uh, significant for you? Yeah. Well, ethics is generally understood to be the study of what is good, right, and just, and uh, focuses on what we ought to do in the various spheres of life and also who we ought to be. It's interesting in the history of Christian ethics, you often have those two being pitted against each other, some who want to focus on the behavioral, the action component, and others on the character component. Um, My contention is that we really need to focus on both, both what we do in the various spheres of life, as well as who we are. That's very much related to the notion of heart, in Scripture, and uh, I think both of those, when we look at the whole of Scripture, uh, are really foci, uh, what we do in various dimensions of life and the kind of people we are in their, those various dimensions. So when we think about environmental ethics, or as I like to term it, creation care, what we're really looking at is what kind of responsibilities do we have with regards to the environment, to God's good creation. How do we respond to it? How do we interact with it? How do we respond to the various crises uh, that we hear about in our world today? All right. So um, you're actually writing a book on creation, care, and ethics. So obviously you take that very seriously. So why is taking care of creation so important? Seems like an obvious question, but... yeah. What do you think? Well, my book is larger than Creation Care. The title that I'm working on is just simply Creation and Ethics, God's Design from uh, Beginning to End. And uh, Creation Care will be part of that, but uh, it's larger than that. And the reason I'm dealing with creation in uh, the broad strokes is really several fold. Uh, On the one hand, the biblical story doesn't make sense without creation. We often describe the biblical story or the narrative of the Christian faith as creation, fall, redemption, and the final restoration. And if you lop off the creation part of that, the other parts really don't make sense. The fall doesn't make sense without a creation. Uh, Redemption really is not uh, truly understandable unless we start with a God who creates us and thus we have some responsibility to that God. So that's one reason for it. I think a second reason for focusing on creation is that it's a very central theme throughout Scripture. As I've been working on this project, uh, one of the things I've been deeply fascinated with is how often creation comes up all throughout the canon of Holy Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. And so it's a very important theme Uh, biblically. Uh, A third reason I think it's important is the doctrine of the Trinity hinges on it. There's a tendency today among some Christians to opt for a kingdom ethic set over against a creation ethic. You particularly get Mm -hmm. into this when you get into sexuality issues. Uh, People, and and you have some evangelicals who, who fall into this camp, who say, well, I think we have to really focus on a kingdom ethic, not go back to creation. What happens when we do that is that we really split the Holy Trinity apart, because God the Creator and God the Redeemer are one. And therefore, as one theologian put it, we cannot have a command of God the Creator set over against the command of God the Redeemer. They're one. The divine trinity is one. And therefore, if you set uh, Jesus or you set the kingdom 
over against creation, you're really tearing at the heart of, of Trinitarian theology, which, of course, is so important to us as, as Christians. And then I think creation is also important uh, because the final restoration, as I understand it, and uh, you had Sean McDonough on uh, a, f- a few weeks ago, I understand, and Sean, of course, has done so much good work on this. But the final restoration is really a restoration of creation. Uh, in, in a sense, the eschaton is really going back to what God intended in creation, and he is restoring it back to what he fully intended uh, in, in the final eschaton. And then a final thing I would say as to why creation is important is there's so many themes in the creation story that are pertinent to ethics. And we'll talk about these as, as we move along today. But the goodness of creation set over against Gnosticisms and asceticisms. Our creation in the image of God, which means that human beings have great value and dignity. The establishment of marriage, family, and sex. The establishment of work. Any work ethic needs to go back and start with uh, creation. Uh, an understanding of the Sabbath, which I think includes not only uh, stopping the world to remember that God has already made it, uh, but it involves issues of justice. That's the way it's utilized, the concept of Sabbath at various parts of the Old Testament in particular. And so you, you have these rich, rich themes that run through the creation story just in Genesis 1 and 2. And included in that, then, of course, is our topic for today, uh, environmental care, creation care, as I like to put it. Does the Bible then give us a basic prescription? Does it give us a uniform way to go so we know how to think about environmental environmental ethics? Or do we just make it up ourselves? Or how do we get there? That's a great question. Well, it's like a lot of issues we face today. We don't have... uh, explicit prescriptions, if I can put it that way. And that's true of many areas. Uh, For any of you who are in the business world and you face uh, ethical issues in the corporation or in your sales job, uh, you you don't always find explicit prescriptions about what you ought to do. Uh, Many, many issues, a couple that is infertile and they're thinking about a reproductive technology uh, reproductive technologies aren't mentioned uh, in uh, in Scripture. Or if you think even about the issue of abortion, abortion is not specifically mentioned. Uh, we don't have prescriptions on uh, the issue of war, which has, of course, been a troubling issue down through the history of the Christian church. And so in those issues, as with creation care, we draw on larger biblical principles and as I like to, to put it, we really draw from the richness of a Christian worldview. Basic understandings about God, about human beings, about the world that God has created. And certainly when we come to an environmental ethic, it really is going to hinge on how we understand the relationship of God, human beings, and the rest of creation. How we put those three elements together is really going to form the heart of our um, creation ethic, our creation care perspective. And so in that sense, this issue is very theological in nature because it really does focus on God, humans, nature, and our understanding of the relationship of those three. What then are the biblical and theological foundations that inform us and particularly inform you? Yeah. Um, and then if you could talk about some uh, scriptural passages. Sure, also. exactly. Well, I think the starting point is um, what we have throughout chapter one of Genesis, this very interesting refrain, it is good. After every day of creation, it is good, it is good, it is good. And you get to the end of chapter one, after God has created humans in his image, after he has given them what we sometimes call the cultural mandates, the mandate to procreate, to care for the earth. Then in verse 31, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. 
Now, what's good in Genesis 1? Well, they're not what we think of as soulish or spiritual things. They're very material things. Every day of creation is about material realities. And all of that led Archbishop William Temple, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury in the middle of the 20th century, to say Christianity is the most materialistic religion in the world. Now, by Hmm. that, he didn't mean uh, materialism as we often think of it, as love of money. He meant that of all the religions of the world, Christianity gives the greatest affirmation to the physical material realm. Just think about it for a minute. Many of the great doctrines are very material or physical related. Creation, we've just mentioned, it is good. The incarnation, God takes on human flesh and lives among us. Now, that was a great concern to some people in early Christianity, uh, especially those who moved in Gnostic directions, because they couldn't imagine how a good God could take on a physical body. And so you had the heresy of docetism, which developed, which said God, Jesus didn't really have a physical body. It just appeared to be a physical body. That's the meaning of, of docetic or docetism, that uh, Jesus looked physical, but if you really dissected the body of Jesus, it wouldn't look like yours and mine. But of course, as the creeds put it, fully God, fully human. And then, of course, we have the the doctrine of the final resurrection. Resurrection of what? Of the soul? No, a resurrection of the body. So from start to finish, there is this very physical dimension uh, to the Christian faith. We are embodied creatures. We live in physical bodies, and that counts because the material realm counts to God. So that's the first thing, I think, a starting point when we think about an environmental ethic, that this world that God has created is a good world. That's the first motive for taking care of it, the fact that it's a good creation uh, pronounced so by God. But then furthermore, in Genesis uh, 1 and 2, we really have mandates to care for this creation, And I want to read a a, a segment, if I can, a couple of verses from Genesis 1, and I think this will bear uh, this out. Genesis 1, starting at verse 26, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And so God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God. He created them, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. And then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed on it, and they will be yours for food. And to the beasts of the earth, we often forget this verse, Mm. to the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food, and it was so. And then over in chapter verse 15, Chapter 2, verse 15, the Lord God took the man, put him into the garden of Eden to work it and to care for it. Now, we have these same concepts that are reiterated in Psalm chapter 8, just a very powerful, beautiful psalm. Of course, it begins as many of the psalms do with God, giving uh, how how majestic is your name in all the earth. But then we go on to read this, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars, which you have set in place, creation. What is mankind that you're mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You've made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. And you made them rulers of the works of your hands and put everything under your feet, their feet, flocks, herds, animals of the wild, birds in the sky, fish in the sea, etc., 
And it concludes with a kind of great doxology, if you will. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now, you really have to unpack those verses a bit uh, because it's precisely those verses that often have led some to criticize Christianity or biblical faith with regards to the environment. And the accusation has been that the language of uh, dominion, as the King James Version has it, or rule, as most of the newer versions have it, uh, and the language of subdue are, is really language of domination, taking hold of creation, doing whatever we want with it. And that is not the case if you really study the meaning of these words. For example, the word for rule is Hebrew word rada, and when it's used of kings in the rest of the Old Testament, the kings are to rada, to rule, how? With justice, with righteousness, not with domination. And the term there uh, that, that is used for, um, uh, I can find it here, uh, verse uh, 28, um, subdue it, the, the term subdue. Um, that is not a word that connotes domination, but it's, it's the sense of bringing things under control. Uh, and, and often with a great deal of effort, which has the idea that we work it, we till the ground, we, we work with all that God has given to bring out the very best in it. And so when you look at these terms, you look at a passage like these two that I've read, really three, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and Psalm 8, it leads us to an understanding that we are stewards of God's creation. God has placed this in our hands, precisely because human beings are made in the image of God. And here, of course, uh, we have a clear distinction between the rest of creation and human beings. There may be much that we share with the rest of creation. Both, incidentally, are created, uh, animals and human beings created on the sixth day. But humans stand apart. Why? They are created in the image of God. And you actually see the link in verse six, where it says, let us make humans in our image so that they may rule. Now, scholars have long debate, what does that mean that we're creating the image of God? And that's a topic for another day. But certainly part of the implication here is precisely because we are made in God's image, we have this rule over the rest of creation that God has made, a good creation. And so uh, those are really foundational pieces, the goodness of creation, and then the mandate that are given to steward what God has created. I think beyond that, we certainly have a lot of other biblical texts that talk about the grandeur and the marvel and the wonder of creation. And if there is a wonder and a beauty and a marvel to creation, and it's placed in our hands, it certainly means that we ought to be taking good care of it. But there are many different views on how we're to relate to the environment. Um, many secular views, many Christian views. Yeah. So if you could delineate some of the secular views first, then Christian views, and then thirdly, what is distinctive about your view? Okay. Well, um, it's often described by a number of scholars that there are three primary approaches to the environment that are really worldview understandings related to the environment. Um, the secular view that is probably gets most press is often called biocentrism. It's the idea that the world of nature and the human world are essentially one. The value of nature, the value of human beings uh, are essentially the same. Uh, and, and so you have the charge sometimes that Christianity adheres to a speciesism in which it elevates one species above all of the others, and that is uh, human beings. And uh, this biocentric view, uh, it has a lot of different forms to it. But one of the things you see in a lot of biocentric writers is the tendency towards a kind of pantheism. In fact, uh, Arnold Toynbee, the great historian, 
really dismissed Christianity in part because of the way it approached the created world. And he said it's called the part of the problem was it's monotheism, which is ex- exclusive. It's either either or in its orientation. And uh, Toynbee went on uh, to make the charge that uh, this monotheism is precisely what leads people away from caring for the world. And then he added to it, the great antidote is pantheism. Mm. That what we need is an understanding in which God, humans, and nature are one, which essentially is what pantheism is. And you find this in what's called the Gaia hypothesis, deep ecology. These are some of Uh, for lack of a better term, a more radical, secular view about environmental ethics, that uh, we ought to care for the world of nature, uh, sometimes even above the world of human beings, because essentially there's not a true difference. Uh, Some of the writers will actually talk about the rights of nature, as if uh, nature has rights in the same way that human beings have rights. Uh, I think that's highly problematic because rights always entails responsibility. And it's hard to think of how a a tree or an animal is going to bear responsibility that would would simply go along with rights. And uh, But this is kind of what you get in the biocentric view. That's kind of the secular view out there. No distinction, and uh, often uh, in the most radical versions, if you have to pick and choose between humans and nature, some would even say you take nature over human beings. Second, on the religious landscape, you have what's sometimes called an anthropocentric view. And here, creation is to serve human beings. Now, most in the anthropocentric camp Uh, are theists, that is, they believe in God, and some go under the name of Christianity. But the idea is that God created the world, the natural world, primarily, and some would even say exclusively, to serve human beings. I think that stands over against the kind of view that I'm really espousing here, what I like to call simply a theocentric view, in which God is the center of reality. God is the center of this world. And when God creates, he creates human beings in his image, therefore distinct from nature, and yet finding in nature great grandeur and glory and a reflection of God's own glory. And so the theocentric view, I think, is set apart from the anthropocentric view because we don't care for nature or simply enjoy nature simply to serve ourselves, we look at it as for the glory of God. It's a theocentric view as opposed to a human-oriented view. And what then is unique about your theocentric view? Why my do you own feel view? It? Right. Well, I want to be clear that uh, what I'm espousing here is not uh, a view that uh, I simply hold. Uh, there are a number of excellent books that have come out in recent years that would espouse this, that would uh, understand that humans are given a stewardship role. That stewardship role is not domination, but it is really a stewarding of what God has placed in our hands, understanding of a distinction between God and humans and nature. And uh, one of the books that I I really like is a, a book on creation care by Doug and Jonathan Moo. I just bought uh, and that. It's an excellent work. I'm actually having my students read it this semester in a class that I'm teaching at Gordon Conwell, uh, because they do such a great job biblically, exegetically, and theologically in understanding the whole of creation. And by the way, it's a, a father-son team uh, right. that is doing this, which I think is just a wonderful model. Um, Doug and I were in seminary together, and Jonathan was one of our graduates of Gordon Conwell. Went on to do PhD work with NT Wright. And yeah, Doug uh, was a uh, professor of mine. Book. I'm sorry. Go ahead. He was a professor of mine. One, I took one class at Wheaton. Okay. Yeah. He was the prof. Yeah. Yeah. Great. That's an excellent work. Um, and and there are a number of other books that are out there that that you can find that I think would espouse much the same view 
and really setting a theocentric perspective over against either the biocentric view or the anthropocentric view. So a lot of uh, people that I've read, they, they break down a difference in categories in secular thought between ecocentric and biocentric. So what's, um, how would you describe the difference there? Yeah, and I think it's a, it's a matter of nomenclature. Uh, as I have read these different folks, um, the uh, eco-centered is more uh, focusing on the fact that there's an ecosystem that is very delicate and very intricate. And if we mess up one part of it, the whole is impacted. Uh, the biocentric tends to be focused more just on the world of nature itself, the bio world, if you will. Um, I think I would fold much of the eco eco-centered into the biocentered uh, perspective. But again, people, as is often true, people use different language, different terminology uh, for sometimes the same thing, sometimes for differences. So in terms of ethics, there's different approaches, deontological and utilitarian, consequentialist, relativist, yeah. virtue, all that. How would you um, describe your orientation towards environmental ethics in terms of those sort of approaches? Yeah, that's a great question. I uh, opt for what I call a worldview foundation in ethics that is distinct from either a consequentialist, like a utilitarian view, or a deontological view. Let me just explain the language of those, because I think it's helpful for your audience to know. A consequentialist approaches to ethics, say, the good, the right, the just, is determined uh, exclusively by consequences. You have two forms of this. You have ethical egoism, which is the consequences related to the moral actor, the person making the moral decision. And you have utilitarianism, which focuses on the greatest good for the greatest number of people impacted by the course of action. The utilitarian says there really is no intrinsic right and wrong. The right and wrong is all related to the consequences of our action. That's the foundation of the ethic. And that's how you make the ethical decision. A principal ethic is, uh, or a deontological ethic, is an ethic that says there are inherent rights and goods in this world, and we have a duty and obligation to follow them. We know them through commands and principles. Uh, those principles, those commands can be gotten through human reason, through experience, uh, or they can be gotten from divine revelation. And I think many people have viewed a Christian ethic as primarily a deontological principle-based ethic. And what I would suggest to us is, yes, we have a lot of commands in Scripture. We have a lot of principles in Scripture. But those are not really the foundation. The foundation is the triune God and the Christian worldview itself, our understanding of creation, fall, redemption, and eschaton. And so when we have the Ten Commandments, for example, let's just use that as an example. Those indeed are commands, but underlying the command is something deeper and fuller. Uh, let's just take the example of uh, you shall not commit adultery. Uh, if you simply stop with just a command, you don't really get to the heart and the meaning of a Christian understanding of sex and sexuality. And so uh, what that command is doing is protecting a good gift of God, which is elucidated in other parts of Scripture about the meaning and the significance of God's gift of sex to human beings. And so it really puts it in a very different foundation, it seems to me, uh, to look at a worldview foundation. And that's why I think when we look at uh, something like environmental ethics, it really makes an awful lot of sense to think about it theologically, to understand it in terms of God, the creator. He's the owner of this creation. Uh, everything uh, in this world is owned by God. Human beings then are distinct from God, unlike pantheism, unlike animism. 
And therefore you have human beings made in God's image. And then you have the rest of the created world created, which human beings are to steward. And so when you think about that worldview foundation, it sets it apart from, I think, an anthropocentric view, which elevates human beings too highly. Uh, It makes humans more the center of the world rather than God the center of the world. And it certainly sets it over against a biocentric world uh, view in which uh, essentially humans and the world of nature are one. And so I think that kind of foundation I find uh, much more helpful in thinking about ethics in general, as opposed to a deontological approach or a consequentialist approach. And uh, certainly you mentioned the term relativism. Relativism basically says there are no moral constants or no moral absolutes. Uh, I actually like to use the word constants. As Christians, we believe there are constants, things that are given by God that are enduring. And uh, I, I like the word constants over absolute because by absolute, we really understand that only God is absolute. Uh, a moral principle is not absolute. It's enduring. It's a constant, but it's not absolute in the sense of being final, of being ultimate in the way that God is final and ultimate and absolute. Very interesting. All right. So the Eastern Orthodox have a lot to say about creation care. Could you um, sum up what's significant about their thought? Yeah, it's interesting. And and I'm not an expert in in this at all. Uh, But uh, when we think about Eastern Orthodoxy, we tend to think of a very uh, otherworldly kind of approach. I mean, if you go into an Orthodox church and you have the icons and so forth, uh, it's it's a sense in which you are um, experiencing heaven on earth almost a very ethereal kind of feel to it. And yet in recent years, there, in in my understanding, have been a number of Orthodox writers who have said that we really do need to have a clear environmental ethic precisely because we have a strong view of creation. So it harkens back to their view of creation. And my faint familiarity with Orthodox writers would be that many of them would hold a view precisely the kind of view that I'm espousing, that the the earth is created good, uh, that God has given a mandate to us, and we take that mandate seriously. All of that really is in great contrast, I think, to the stereotype and even the way uh, many Christians of, of some knowledge have viewed Eastern Orthodoxy in the past, precisely being a very otherworldly kind of faith. So you already mentioned uh, Doug and Jonathan Moo. Who are some other modern theologians, uh, not necessarily that wrote whole books on environmental Yeah, uh, the the New Testament scholar uh, Richard Balcom, has uh, has done a, a a good book, I think, that is very very helpful. Um, uh, Prediger Buma, uh, or is it Buma Prediger? Uh, he has a hyphenated last name. Uh, he teaches up at Hope College in uh, in Michigan. Uh, has done several books on creation care and environment, and uh, and and they're really quite uh, helpful, I think. Um, those are, are, are some of the ones that most stand out. And I want to just mention one other, and that is Francis Schaeffer, Pollution and the Death of Man, the first book right. I ever read about creation care was uh, Francis Schaeffer. And I went back and read it again recently, and uh, he really does a good job in that book. He, uh, what precipitated it was a very famous article that was written in 1967 by Lynn White, who made the charge that Christianity is responsible for the environmental mess. Now, Lynn White was a churchman. He went to church regularly, but uh, he really believed that the, the kind of dualisms that we have in Christian faith, that the dominion language that we have, um, our eschatology that we that some Christians have, all of that 
leads Christians away from a, uh, a truly viable, a viable environmental ethic. Lynn White's article has been published over and over again. I don't think there's an article uh, or a book that comes out on Christian faith and environment that doesn't go back to Lynn White's article, 1967. That's what propelled Francis Schaeffer to deal with uh, the title of his book, Pollution and the Death of Man. And in that book, Schaeffer does uh, a lot of the kind of thing that I'm talking about today. He gets back to very basics about our understanding of how we understand God and humans and nature, the interface of those three that are really at uh, the heart of it. And um, he, he makes, uh, a, he, this is before anybody was talking about an anthropocentric view of the environment, but uh, he makes several statements in the book, as I went through this recently, noted that are clearly in contrast and would challenge an anthropocentric view that God simply creates this earth for our good as human beings, uh, a kind of utilitarian view, if you will, of the environment, uh, that it's ours to, yes, to utilize, to meet our needs and so forth. Um, and, but that's the only focus of the, um, of the good of the environment in an anthropocentric view. And Schaefer really clearly challenges that, I think. So another earlier um, Christian writer on the environment was uh, Wesley Granberg Michelson. Right. That's the right name. He wrote A Worldly Spirituality. Right. So um, what do you remember about him? You know, I, I have glanced at the book, but I haven't read it fully, so I, I shouldn't comment on it. Okay. I'm aware okay. that I'm aware of the book, and it was one of the early writings that I think spurred a lot of Christians uh, back before I was really doing a lot of work on, on the environmental side of things. All right. So you already touched on this before, but why do so many people in the world see Christianity as the culprit in this whole yeah, environmental yeah. mess? Well, as you mentioned, I've alluded to it before, but let me systematize it a little bit. Arnold Toybee said uh, Christianity was uh, uh, to blame because of its um, monotheism. And a lot of people have said, once you make a demarcation between God, humans, and nature, the battle's lost, okay? Hmm. And, and so what you need is some kind of an animism, uh, as you have in some traditional religions, as you had indigenous religions here in the Americas. Uh, in basically, an animism means that the natural world is somehow inhabited by spirits in some way. It's animated has spiritual life to it. Or uh, you need to turn to a pantheism in which God and humans and nature are one. So the charge of monotheism, the, the charge that uh, having uh, rule or dominion is domination. I've already addressed that. That, of course, I think is what sparked a lot of the criticisms against Christianity and against the scripture. And then the dualisms, um, the, the kind of dualisms between uh, spirit and matter, between soul and body, uh, dualisms between God and nature. Uh, you can spell out all kinds of dualisms. And the idea here is that when you have a dualism that pulls these things apart, it lends credence to a, an abuse of the physical and the material realm. And I would just say on that, uh, some of our dualisms are unwarranted. Uh, some are warranted, dualism of, uh, of nature and grace, for example. We understand those are two different things, uh, the, the dualism of God and nature. But we realize the, the whole body-soul dichotomy, um, too much has been made of that dichotomy by Christians, I think. And uh, I think it's better to talk about a unified dimension or a unified understanding of, of human beings. We have a material part. We have an immaterial part. But I find it very interesting that the language of body, soul, and spirit in Scripture are often used quite interchangeably with each other. And that's partly what has led uh, scholars, biblical scholars, theologians, 
uh, to say we need to hold to a unitary view of human beings. But the charge of dualism that many people saw, at least from afar, looking in at Christianity. And then the charge of eschatology. If in the end, God is simply going to destroy this world, if in the end he's going to rapture us out of this world, destroy it, then why should we care for it? And at first glance, you can understand uh, from a few biblical texts why some might hold to this. I think of Second Peter th- uh, chapter 3, where it uses the language of fire and the language right. of destruction and so forth. And Doug and Jonathan Moo, by the way, in their book, just do a great job, I think, of developing, you know, probing that uh, particular text. Right, and right. showing that it, uh, it is far more symbolic language here. For example, one of the things that's very interesting in Second Peter 3, and the moves point this out, is that just a few verses before this text about God's judgment, destruction, fire, etc., there is the same language used with regards to the flood and Noah. Well, the destruction didn't mean that God destroyed the whole world. Rather, God judged the world. It's language of judgment. And I think as evangelical Christians, sometimes we haven't done a good enough job of really ciphering out the kind of biblical language we're dealing with. Uh, What is the nature of the particular language that's being used? Of course, that's what has led some Christians to an over-literalistic interpretation of the book of Revelation, which uh, has led us sometimes, I think, to really miss the full impact of the eschaton and and, uh, Revelation and what it's uh, teaching. But those are the charges that are made against it, and I think we we do need to respond adequately to them. And I would just say, let me just uh, talk a little bit about the eschatology piece. when we deal with debates on eschatology, so often we, uh, we get bound up with debates such as uh, pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, all that kind of thing, or premillennial, uh, amillennial, post-millennial. I think the really crucial issues in eschatology is do we adhere to a continuity with creation or a discontinuity with creation? Mm. To me, that's a far more illuminating kind of discussion. And I have come to hold personally to a continuity view. And uh, there are a number of reasons for this. But uh, let me just mention, at the end of a Revelation, you have imagery. And I'm talking about the last two chapters of, of Revelation. You have imagery metaphors that harken back to Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, For example, you have the river flowing through in uh, Genesis 2 and the river uh, mentioned in in Revelation. You have the tree of life that is referred to. You have a reference to light without the sun. Uh, We often forget this, that in Genesis chapter 1, the luminaries don't appear until day 4. Light appears in day 1. I think all all that, of course, helps us understand that uh, Genesis is not a scientific rendition. It's a theological rendition. And I think it's very significant that light is the very first thing that appears in God's creation. Hmm. And so when you think of John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God. And he goes on then to speak of the light that comes through the Word. Uh, that is, and of course, John 1 is hearkening very clearly in its language back to Genesis 1 as, sure. as well. So interestingly, you, you have this kind of linkage of images, metaphors at the end of the Bible that harken back to the very beginning at creation. And so when it says that uh, God will establish a new heavens and a new earth, Uh, The word that is used for new there doesn't always mean new in the sense of totally de novo, to use the Latin term, uh, something totally new, but rather the sense of renewed, taking that which exists and renewing. So a new heavens and new earth, 
I think we can think of as a renewed heavens and a renewed earth after the fall, after the chaos and all that we have done with it. God then renews it and restores it back to what he intended in creation. So when, when we look at it in that way, I think they're good answers to these criticisms that have been made against um, uh, biblical faith with regards to environmental ethic and laying the blame for an environmental ethic at the feet of the Christian church. Okay, so of course there's just thousands of key issues relating to the environment uh, what do you think are some of the most crucial? And then could you spend some time on greater detail on just one or two of them? Yeah, well, we, we have, of course, pollution, pollution of air, uh, pollution of water, and, uh, and pollution of land. Uh, and, of course, uh, uh, pollution does great harm to the health of individuals. So if we are concerned about the health of God's creatures created in his image, then we have to be concerned about the kind of things that we do that contaminate uh, this good world. That's, that's one area. Uh, second, of course, is the destruction of both non-renewable and renewable resources. Non-renewable resources are resources that uh, take a long, long, long time to renew. Uh, energy, for example, fossil fuel energy would be one example of that. Renewable energy is um, is the uh, the kind of thing that we we often talk about with regards to forests and land. We can renew it, but it takes some time. And uh, of course, uh, deforestation. I mean, uh, many people are aware of what has been happening in the Amazon region of Brazil and the destruction of the forest in the Amazon. The way that really is just destroying ecosystems there, impacting species and the like. Uh, our, our destruction of arable land actually means that we have less fertile land in certain areas to work with. Um, you have the, the uh, desert uh, coming down in Africa every year, coming down further and further and further, mm. uh, often because of forests and trees are being destroyed. And all that has an impact upon the health of people, upon the food production. These things are all interrelated. And then, of course, we hear we have the big one that people talk most about today, and that is global warming, which is greenhouses coming from fossil fuels that then trap heat and warm the earth. And uh, the effects of this, of course, are uh, melting of glaciers at the North Pole, therefore the rise of sea levels. Uh, it means um, more erratic kinds of patterns in weather, such as and sometimes drought, sometimes floods. And uh, all of this then has an impact, obviously, upon human beings, upon their well-being, upon their flourishing, and, and so forth. So these are some of the issues. I'm not an expert on any of these areas, and, and uh, certainly our biology friends could, could talk about them more in depth. But I think we are concerned about these for a couple of reasons. One is because this is God's good creation. I think we just have to hearken back to that again and again and again. It's God's good creation, and we are to steward it with care. But if we are concerned about human beings— created in the image of God. We're concerned about their uh, physical well-being. We're concerned about their emotional well-being. We recognize that environmental concerns can have a very negative impact upon them. And so we're often concerned about poverty and what that does to human beings. We're often concerned uh, about the way in which uh, war and violence harms human beings. I mean, we can look at any number of things that happen in our broken, fallen world that brings harm to human beings. Uh, but when we think about the environment and the fact that environmental degradation at any number of these levels I mentioned brings harm to human beings, it should, I think, provoke us to, uh, to great concern, uh, along with the other factors that this is really a destruction of God's good creation, and we're called to steward it. 
So given the fact uh, of the way most Americans live, um, our lives are not exactly sustainable. I mean, with more and more wealth being developed around the world, the idea that everybody in Asia, Africa, Latin America would be able to live at the same level Americans do is ridiculous. It's it's just not going to work. So it seems that even before we talk about the practical aspects of what we can do, there needs to be some sort of heart change of real repentance. And it's not just that we need to change a different way. Okay, I'm going to get a more fuel-efficient car or I'm going to make these choices here. But we we just need to learn to deal do with a lot less. Yeah. So yeah. what can you say? How can we foster a greater sense of repentance? How can, how can repentance over the environment be part of our discipleship? I mean, we talk well, about sexuality, right? Of course, yeah, of yeah. course you give that up to God. Yeah. But your stance towards the environment, is that something yeah. you surrender to God? Well, you, you bring up a really important point, Dennis, and, and it's interesting when we think about what we repent of. I've often been fascinated with that. What have, what have Christians repented of down through the history of the Christian church? And, and uh, we have not repented, for example, I'm going to use the language of our social sins, our racism, mm. uh, our, uh, our abuse of the environment, etc., and, and I think what we're dealing, what you're really pointing to is the fact that we live in a consumerist society. And uh, we think that the more we consume uh, of this world's goods, the better off we will be, the more we will enjoy life and so forth. It's good for the economy. That, yeah, I think all that gets back to a, a, a broader understanding of stewardship. Stewardship doesn't mean that we simply utilize it for my selfish gain. It doesn't mean that we utilize the resources God has put in our hands, whatever those resources are, uh, to meet my needs, uh, but really to, number one, glorify God and to also meet the needs of others. And so it does get back to to lifestyle uh, kinds of things. Now, I I do want to guard against something that I think is a, a... a concern that I have as I think about ethics, we have often fallen prey to legalisms. And legalisms, we we develop kind of human rules of what you can and can't do. And we've had the old legalisms in evangelical Christianity, but I fear that we're sometimes developing new, new legalisms with regards to poverty issues and with regards to environmental ethics, etc., and uh, so that you're only a good Christian if you if you drive a a, a hybrid. Uh, I recently bought a new car. It was a hybrid car, and I've uh, got a Prius myself. Good, good. <laughs> and and but you know I don't want to make that a mark of discipleship. For example, I want to say to people: think about your life, think about what you consume. I mean, I'll just give an example. It takes an awful lot of arable land to raise beef. And so uh, my wife and I, uh, we eat beef, we eat chicken and so forth, but we do so very moderately. And, and I think each person needs to think of these uh, through the lifestyle that they live. But I, I do have concerns about some of the kind of legalisms that are developing with regards to issues of poverty, with regards to issues of environment. And uh, I'll, I'll just use uh, one example Uh, Many have uh, argued that we ought to only uh, drink coffee that is, um, trying to think of the term that is uh, is often used today. um, um, Fair trade. Thank you. Thank you, Dennis. Fair trade coffee. And, uh, you know, I've been in churches and Christian institutions and notes about fair trade coffee. And the reason for fair trade coffee is that more of the money is going to go back to the workers and not to the big coffee companies, and it will be more environmentally friendly. Now, it's interesting. I've read several articles over the last few years, not by right-wing organizations. Several of these were by very leftist organizations coming out of England and Europe, 
that actually found that the fair trade copy was not putting as much money in the hands of workers as corporate produced kind of coffee. Wow. Now, that's very, that was just fascinating to me because I think fair trade coffee had been kind of new form of legalism that it had developed in some ways. And I say that not in any way to denigrate people who choose fair, fair trade coffee, but simply to point out we often need to do our homework, as is often true of legalisms, People kind of get on the bandwagon of a certain pattern, a certain way of life, a certain procedure that you ought to follow. And we develop a new human regulation that becomes an end in itself and sometimes is not even warranted when we actually look more deeply uh, at what is happening uh, beneath the surface. So uh, as I as I think about how we approach an environmental ethic, uh, we think of, I think we need to think about it at an individual level. That is our own individual personal lifestyle and what that means. And each of us, I think, before God have to be uh, very, very serious about that. Second, we think about the role of the church and Christian institutions. And uh, and there, I think uh, churches, I mean, just simple things of, of recyclable bins in the church, uh, thinking about um, solar energy. Uh, those are things that, yes, in a little way can make a dent, but they are also teaching Christians the importance of environmental care. And so when Christian institutions or when churches uh, take steps to be more concerned about the stewardship of this world. I think they're sending a message as well as doing good. And then, of course, you have the public policy level. And here's where we get into so many of the debates. And I think, unfortunately, they're driven far more by ideology than they are by what is the best course and path of action uh, for our world and for our society. And unfortunately, I think a lot of a lot of Christians don't even look at an environmental ethic because um, they, they deem it to be, well, that's a left-wing kind of thing, meaning they're looking at it uh, from the standpoint of an ideology. And so many of our discussions about ethics today, and I'm particularly thinking about uh, social ethics, is driven far more by ideology than it is by biblical theological understanding and really seeking wise courses of action. The courses of action we take individually, collectively, uh, whether it be at a church level or a societal level, those courses of action call for wisdom. And in wisdom, we are dealing, we recognize with complex issues. Uh, the course of action that we ought to take is not always clear. Oftentimes, we actually have multiple principles at play. And I'll just give you an example of what I mean by multiple principles at play. You, you have some that uh, want to emphasize only an environmental ethic and uh, are, are not very concerned about uh, the, 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 um, the production of goods within the world. And you have others that emphasize only the production of goods within this world and don't give much time to an environmental ethic. Now, both of those are moral goods. If you play down, if you accentuated only an environmental ethic and, and just totally played down production, distribution of goods, people will be out of jobs, you will engender poverty, etc. On the other hand, if you go totally... I'm going to use the language of kind of a corporate model. We're just going to produce as much as we can, distribute as much as we can, consume as much as we can without any attention to the environment, then you're going to destroy the environment. And so it's the sort of thing where you have to hold these two together. We're concerned about economic realities and we're concerned about environmental realities. And that takes a great deal of wisdom. And that's where legalisms aren't very good in dealing with complexities, and they're certainly not very good in really coming up with what is the wisest course of action within my Christian worldview uh, to carry out what God wants of us in the complexities of our broken, fallen world today.
All right. So finally, if you were the lead pastor of a church, how would you preach, teach, and promote um, stewardship of the environment uh, in terms of providing the theology, but also leading the church in practicals and also dealing with those naysayers who see anything, like you said, related to the environment as just an extension of liberal politics. What would you do as a lead pastor? Yeah, uh, I would preach expository sermons on the kind of text that I mentioned today. We could include a lot of other ones in on it. If we start with, today I'm going to talk about environmental care. (laughs) You're going to immediately have some people that are going to turn off. If, however, you're doing a series of sermons from Genesis 1 and 2, or if you're preaching from the Psalms and you're doing a sermon on Psalm chapter 8, or if you're preaching certain texts from the book of Revelation, for example, which has a lot to say about creation, by the way, um, you in some ways eliminate the, the kind of, of reaction that some people are going to have. They're having to hear the word. And you move from what the word means then to its application. I think one of the things I learned, and I was a pastor for 11 years, is you, you don't get people to, people to where they need to be by beating them over the head. They need to hear the word of God. They need to intuit that word. And they need to be brought along to new patterns of thinking, new ways of being relative to the kinds of issues we're facing in our world today. And and so uh, I think then in light of that, you bring things into the church like uh, recycling and solar energy and, and so forth in light of the preaching and teaching that you have done that really emanates uh, directly from God's word. And so that has been always my, uh, my concern, my passion, to start with the word, let the word do the conviction, convicting, if you will, uh, rather than my doing the convicting because I want to get, you know, I'm on my high horse of, about a given issue. Uh, let the do, word do its job within a person and then begin to see the application to that. I think that's a much better way than simply trying to, quote, unquote, whip people into shape on any given issue, whatever it might be. So more text-focused than topically focused. I would, exactly, exactly. And I think there's such a richness in Scripture here that we have so much to work with. And I'll just say this yet. You know, when people think about creation, Dennis, unfortunately, people get embroiled in the controversies uh, when did God create and how did God create and did God utilize any natural processes in his creation? We, we get embroiled in those controversies and, uh, and then we miss the real heart of what Genesis is teaching because Genesis is really teaching us about God and about humans and uh, what it means then to live in this good but now broken world that he's created. Right. I have also found that people who may be on the edge, you know, they're drug addicts or something, they're just really struggling with life, they come to a church and the whole sermon is a topical sermon about creation care. They're like, they they don't have any space for that. They're just trying to make it through the day without, yeah, you know, exactly. getting high again. Yeah. But if they hear, I too am created in the image of God. And being created in the image of God, I have some responsibilities for caring for my body and caring for others and caring for the world. It puts it in a whole different uh, frame of reference. Right. Right. Excellent. All right. That's really good stuff. Um, it's a lot to think about, a lot to chew on. Uh, when is your book coming out? Well, I'm still writing it. So uh, I've still got a few more. It's, this is about an 11-chapter book, and I'm a little over halfway through on it. But uh, it will have chapters, for example, on the goodness of creation. Uh, the, the, that title is, uh, It's a Good World After All, Money, Sex, and Power. And my okay. take there is we, we usually think about money, sex, and power as the great ethical problems in our world. And we know there are indeed tremendous abuses there. But that we really ought to start with understanding these are good gifts of God. 
and we redeem them so that even with power, for example, uh, power, uh, it's actually dangerous to negate power. What we need to understand is, as Jesus taught us, power is really about taking the capacity we have in various spheres of life and turning it into service and servanthood to others. So chapter on the goodness of creation, on the image of God and uh, human dignity, um, chapter on creation care, uh, chapter on marriage, family, and sex, chapter on other relational dimensions, being created relational beings, uh, create a chapter on work being instituted by God at creation, on, uh, as I mentioned, the Sabbath and implications of justice, not only worship of God and care for self, but justice. Uh, the fact that we are created finite creatures and what that means relative to, say, utopianisms or uh, movements like transhumanism and so forth. Um, these are the kinds of things I'm attempting to deal with. So they're very, very current, but everything is starting back with Genesis 1 and 2 being created as whole beings, uh, a holistic concept of humans and what that means. My final chapter then will be uh, living a creation in a, uh, in a broken, fallen world. You know, how we try to live it out in the, in the midst of that uh, world that we all know is so difficult today. Fascinating. All right. I look forward to the book coming out. All right. Well, I'm Dennis Metzler, and you've been viewing The Charge. We've been with Dr. Dennis Hollinger. So, Dr. Hollinger, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Dennis. Good to be with you. All right. Peace to everyone. <laughs>